When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Visc, you'll hear Shane Torres. In walked a man I can only describe as having one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say that a new Patreon donor would like me to thank Christina for introducing him to Risk and being such a good audience for his first story. More importantly, for being such an unlikely and supportive and ridiculously fun friend recently. Also, a shout out to another new Patreon donor, Sarah Allen. Now, Sarah gets a shout out because she is a $25 or more per month Patreon donor. You know, it's our donors that are really doing so much to help keep risk running right now if you don't know go to patreon.com slash risk that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk you can donate you know as little as a dollar a month three dollars ten dollars but the more you donate the more access you have to prizes and perks there's a lot there that's available to people who just become donors of even the smallest amount right there at patreon there's a lot of bonus content videos um, extra stories that we've never run on the podcast all that kind of stuff go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron and help us keep this running today also sometimes fans send me little gifts and you know it's it's super super touching i I adore it really (laughs) but these latest two are so nice that i really should give a shout out to these ladies Lori bean sent me a wonderful box of georgia jams just delicious stuff and janice turner knows how much i love meditation she got me a subscription to headspace the app that helps you meditate each day. A year-long subscription to that. What a treat. What I, I'm so touched. Thank you to both those ladies. But before we get to the show, I want to quickly include, you know, one of our favorite storytellers is Jolenta Greenberg. She's told several really wonderful stories on the show and was actually an editor of ours for a while there. Well, she's got her own show now. It's called By the Book. And here's a little bit more about that. In each episode of Buy the Book, we choose a different self-help book to live by and weigh in on whether or not it actually works. Living by their rules. You should just drive. I'm going to do it. I'm going to manifest it. Applying their suggestions. You have to smile that hard. I do. I just need to feel it. And practicing their ridiculous rituals. I am health. I am wealth. I'm Jolenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And Buy the Book is out now. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Like wherever you're listening to Risk right now. Okay, now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Baby Dollhouse behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Role Models. These are three stories in which kids had to kind of come face to face with the humanity of their parents. Who are the guardians? And who are the galaxy? That didn't make any sense. You know, a couple of these stories today were recorded quite a long time ago. We have quite an archive of stories we've never run before. And we're starting to put a lot of those on our Patreon. You know, stuff where we're like, ah, gosh darn it, we've been meaning to put this on forever. But, uh, well, what the heck? We'll just put it out as bonus content on Patreon. Then every now and then we see a few like today that just fit together like a glove into fingers. Or vice versa. <laughs> now in a little bit we're going to hear from Shane Torres, an absolutely hilarious comedian based in New York. But before that we're going to hear a story that was told at our first ever show in Vancouver. Not our most recent show in Vancouver, but the one that we did last year in 2016. This is Ariel Brown with a story we call Not Cool, Mom. It's 1979, and I'm 15 years old. It's a sweltering hot summer day in southern Ontario, so I'm headed for the mall. In fact, I'm going to the record store, and I want to get there early today because I'm going to pick up Pink Floyd's new album, The Wall, before it gets sold out. I also want to get there early because I don't really want to be seen today because overnight, a like grotesque zit has sprouted out on my forehead. Why do I not have bangs? <laughs> so I'm there with my best friend, Charlene. We're at the record store. We're flipping through the albums. And there's actually already quite a few teenagers uh, in the crowd. There's a woman directly across from me. She has her back for me. She's doing her own shopping. And she's clearly not a teenager, even though she kind of dresses like one. She's wearing really short shorts. Like, I can see a little bit of her bum sticking out the bottom. And come on, nobody looks good in that look. She's wearing a tube top. And I noticed that her blonde hair is in uh, braided pigtails. And I'm thinking, what does she remind me of? And I think, she kind of looks like the Swiss Miss walked out of a porno set. Now the song, I Will Survive, comes over the PA system and I see her start to like wiggle her ass to the beat of the music and I think, oh God, no, please. And I'm filled with dread because I know what is about to happen because this woman is my mother. <laughs> and she turns around and points a dramatic finger at Charlene and I and sings with her loud voice, go, walk out the door which is exactly what I do. So I grab Charlene and I drag her out of the record store. Charlene is laughing her ass off. She says, oh my God, your mom is so funny. 
I just roll my eyes and disagree. Mom dances her way all out of way out of the record store. She's still pointing at us and she says, "Come on, girls, it's Saturday. I got to get to work. It's my best day for tips." So yes, I have the cool mom. In my world, there's only two kinds of people: the ones with the cool mom, that's me, and all my friends who think that they want to have the cool mom. So I'm 15. She's 33, but she looks about 25 years old. Okay, and she's sexy. There's no getting around it. She's also American, so she's louder than anybody else in my neighborhood. Okay, and all I hear all the time from my friends is, "Your mom is so cool." Your mom is so funny. I wish your mom was my mom. So, as a teenager, that just made her different, and I didn't have any interest in being different. You know, when you're a teenager, I felt like my family was already different enough because most of my friends had two parents, and a lot of them had a stay-at-home mom, and they had money. They were like middle class, and. My mom was a single parent. She was raising three kids and struggling to keep a roof over our heads as a bartender. Okay, unlike my friends who only had jobs to like for fun money, I actually had to have a job for things like shoes, things like necessities, other teenage necessities like birth control and drugs as well. <laughs> We pile in the car. Mom's driving. Charlene's sitting in the back, and my mom says. Hey, girls! You know the kids are going to their fathers for the weekend. The kids—that's what my mom and I actually refer to my younger brother and sister when we talk about them together. They're the kids, and I didn't realize that that was weird until I was much older. So she says the kids are going to be at their dad's. You girls should go out and have some fun tonight. Charlene's got her chin kind of resting on the back of the seat, and she's staring up at my mom like, like as if she's like a puppy. She says, "Liz." That's her name. It's a rule that everyone must call my mom Liz because it's prohibited to call her Mrs. Anything because that makes her feel old. So she says, "Liz, can I stay at your place every weekend until I move out? Because you know my parents are a total bummer." She says, "Sure, honey, you can stay over any time you want." I say, "Yeah, Charlene, why don't you stay over and then you can help me make dinner for the kids and do laundry for the kids and put the kids to bed." I don't know exactly when it is that my mom stopped thinking of me as one of the kids, but the year before she'd given me a birthday card and it said, "I'm so glad that you're my best friend." And I felt like she'd punched me in the gut. I was really hurt, but of course I hid that from her because I always hid that from her, and I just pretended I was really angry and I just threw it on the floor. And I said, "You're not my friend. You're supposed to be my mother." I expect that probably hurt her feelings. Now, I used to have a normal mom. I used to have like a real normal stay-at-home mom. She was there every morning when I got up, and I would race home from school every day. She would make me a snack, and I would tell her all the stories of my day, and she would listen to them like they were like the most interesting thing in her world, because they were. Because then, being my mom was her job. And she was good at all those normal mom things, but sometimes she was even way beyond the call of duty. Like the birthday parties she threw for me were incredible. And when I was really little, she sewed us matching summer sundresses with those little triangle kerchiefs that you put on your head. It was really cute. 
But the one thing my mom really sucked at was choosing men. When I was two years old, the guy that she chose to be my stepfather was exactly like her own father. He was mean and controlling. And he was 13 years her senior. And to this day, I have no idea how he got the prettiest, youngest woman in the neighborhood to marry him. And there's really no nice way to say this, so I'm just going to get it over with. He had a really bad habit of getting really drunk and beating the shit out of her. And this went on for a very long time, and eventually she figured out that he would kill her and probably orphan her children. I thought she would never leave, but one day out of the blue, she did. I was 11 years old, and with no warning, she just walked into my room one day, sat down on my bed, and with this like really uncharacteristic calm and confidence, she said, we are moving out, and we are never coming back. And I knew that she meant it. So overnight, everything changed. First of all, I lost my evil step monster, and that was a good thing. But I also lost my school and my friends uh, and my house and my mom because there was actually no resemblance between the old mom and the new mom. It was the full Jekyll and Hyde. She was out from underneath the fist of her father and her husband for the first time in her life. She was free. She was single. And she had the emotional maturity of a 14-year-old. <laughs> so we had some hard times ahead. But of course, being a teenager, I was mostly completely self-absorbed about what was going on for me and not what she was dealing with. It was quite stressful for her because she had never put a roof over her own head, much less three children. For me, the worst part was within a couple of years, it became obvious that we were going through adolescence at the same time together. And I'll tell you right now, in a mother-daughter relationship, there is only room for one teenager, and it wasn't going to be me. I mean, I gave it a good try, but the truth is my mom was a better teenager than me all the time. So uh, if I stayed out, started to stay out late, she could just rock and roll all night long. And if my friends taught me how to smoke a joint, her friends were teaching her how to hot knife hash on our kitchen stove. And if I was learning how to make out with boys, she was fucking men like she had six months to live. <laughs> Meanwhile, all the time, my friends are telling me, your mom is so cool, your mom is so awesome. I kind of um, dreaded going to events that had dancing or like weddings, that kind of thing, because my mom was a really good dancer. Like she really knew how to move, but you couldn't help when you watched her to think about sex. It just was impossible. One time I brought my boyfriend for a Thanksgiving dinner and uh, some song that she really loved came on and we, you know, we had quite a group of family around the table and she'd gotten a bit tipsy. And in the end, she like ended up standing up on the chair and doing her like swim, go-go routine. And uh, I just turned to her and I just barked, Mom, stop it. She looked down from me at the chair and she said, don't be such a prude. And I thought, what 15-year-old gets called a prude by their own mother? That's crazy. I felt kind of like invisible and exposed all at the same time. Like maybe I was a prude. Maybe there was something wrong with me. It just brought up a lot of embarrassment, but truthfully, it probably also brought up a little bit of jealousy because a blossoming teenage girl, I wanted to be fun and sexy and, as well. 
My friends were still always telling me how lucky I was to have a mom that was more like a friend. And they were kind of jealous of my freedom as well. And then it kind of became my turn to become the Jekyll and Hyde because when I was with my friends, I was fun and bubbly and playful. But when I was with my mom, I started to become, it was like the more flirty and outrageous she became, the more kind of humorless and uptight and critical I became. So then it started to turn out that when I'd bring my friends around to home, my mom would start to act out and I would be critical of her. My friends would end up saying like, why are you being such a bitch to your mom? And I was like, oh my God, I can't handle this anymore. So I just made the decision. I'm just, I'm not going to bring my friends home anymore. Forget it. And so I just built this like big wall right down the middle of my life. And I put my mom on one side and I put my friends on the other. And that was the way that I handled it. And that kind of worked out for a little while. But sometime around the time I was 16, I got this brilliant idea in my head that I wanted to have a party at my house. And I knew that the hard part wasn't going to be getting my mom to agree to let me have a party because she was a party girl. I knew that the hard part was going to be to get her to agree to not be there, to not be part of the fun. So I went to her and I said, Mom, I really want to have a party at my house with my friends. And can you please, please, please not be there? Just us kids, no adults. Even you can't be there. And to her credit, she actually said yes. And she didn't make me feel bad for excluding her. And she said, yeah, have a party. I'll go to work, go do something. And, uh, you know, if I get home and the party's still on, I'll just, I'll just stay out of your way. And I thought, finally, having the cool mom is going to pay off for me because I knew that she would buy us beer. Now, remember, these are the days when people used to drink and drive, so don't freak out about her buying teenagers beer. That, that kind of thing happened all the time. And uh, so she helped me get the house ready and get pizza and all that. And my friends came over, and it was a great party. So, you know, there's people at the table playing euchre, drinking beer, and music's blasting, and the girls are dancing in the living room, and people are making out here and there, having fun. And it's an awesome party. It's great. Around 11 o'clock, I see my mom's, the lights of her car come through the driveway. So I know she's come home, but I don't see her. So I know that true to her word, she's like slipped away into the bedroom and the party goes on. And I'm so proud of her because I know that she's doing this for me. We're starting to run out of beer. So I decide we, you know, friends were like, let's take the party elsewhere. Let's, you know, let's go have an after party somewhere. And I think to myself, well, I should just be courteous to my mom. And I'm going to go tell her that we're going to take the party elsewhere. And I really want to thank her because she has, you know, she really pulled it together for me. I really wanted this. And she might be like the most irresponsible mom in the neighborhood, but she's being a mom tonight. I'm going to go thank her. So I see the light on under her bedroom door and I go do the courtesy knock, but I don't wait for her to, to answer. And I just fling the door open and there in the bed is my naked mother and my naked friend, Andrew. My mother has been fucking my 17-year-old high school friend in her bed, in our house, at my party. And... Andrew rolls off, their eyes are as big as saucers, and they don't even have the decency to look embarrassed. They are laughing and pulling the sheets up over them. But I start to scream. 
And I don't mean like scream at them or like say any words or anything. I just start to scream like a hysterical woman in a horror film. It's like every embarrassment and humiliation in my life is just pouring out of my mouth in these uncontrollable, ear-piercing screams. But at the same time, there's like this rational part of my mind looking at myself and going, what are you doing? Stop it. Stop it right now. But I can't stop. I just keep screaming and screaming. And then my screams are turning into like snotty, messy, kind of heaving, sobbing sounds. But all this achieves is to draw attention to myself. And now all of my friends have run down the hall and they're standing huddled behind me, looking past me into the bedroom at Andrew and my mom in the bed. And Andrew has this really satisfied smirk on his face. And this is where the boys and the girls are different because the boys are like high-fiving each other and hooting and hollering and the girls are silent, okay? Somebody grabs my arm and pulls me out of there and we just walk out of the house, my little posse of girls, and we pile into my friend Kim's car. Cigarettes are passed around. We drive to our favorite restaurant and we sit around stuffing our faces with gravy and Cokes and they sympathize and they coo over me and all the attention is on me and Charlene says, your mom is not cool, that was not cool. And all my friends agree, that was not cool. And finally, my time has come. My friends understand me and I am not crazy. And never again after that night did I ever ever again have to hear that my mom was the cool mom and they wish that she was their mom. And I suspect that they went home and the next day they gave their boring, predictable moms the biggest hugs of their lives. Thank you. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? What do you mean? You've known me nearly all your life. You must have formed some opinion of me. Well, I always thought that you were a very nice person. Did you know I was an alcoholic? What? Did you know that? Look, I think I should be going. Sit down, Benjamin. Mrs. Robinson, if you don't mind my saying so, this conversation is getting a little strange. Now, I'm sure that Mr. Robinson will be here any minute now. No. What? My husband will be back quite late. He should be gone for several hours. Oh, my God. Pardon? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, no. What's wrong? Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. <laughs> like what? What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't know. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? So, 
I, I'm a comedian, so I had to take all the punchlines out of this. And when I did that, I was having Mexican food and I started crying over a burrito. So if I get a, a little fucked up on this, it could be worse, is what I'm telling myself. So when I was 15 years old, I had to move my father into a homeless shelter. And I think to like have the best grasp of this story, you'd have to understand what kind of person my father was. I would say my father was a good guy, but not a good man, if that makes sense. Like, he had a lot of trouble meeting his responsibilities towards his family and anybody else, really. Uh, yeah, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> you laugh like a bully's friend, by the way. <laughs> Get him, Doug. Uh, still trying to keep it loose. Can't do it. Got barriers up. Um, so... We had, uh, we'd lost our house and my folks' uh, divorce, and my dad got an apartment, and my mom somehow managed to scrape together enough money to get us into a house in our neighborhood. So it was the summer after they divorced, and I was standing outside of my mom's place having a cigarette. I was cool, and uh, I was enjoying my camel, and I'm a brand loyalist. I, uh, my father pulled up in uh, Plymouth Acclaim, which is a weird thing to name a car that got so little of it. Uh, <laughs> and it was just fucking floor to roof just piled with all of his shit. And he gets out of the car and I say, Dad, what's going on? And he just goes, plain as God's thumbprint. Shaney, I gotta move into a homeless shelter, could use another pair of hands. It's <laughs> like, fuck, that's how you're gonna say it? <laughs> And I know most divorced dads would take their kids to a movie or like a Cowboys game, but he was on a budget. Uh, so I says, okay. And we, I'm from the south side of Fort Worth, Texas. And we get on I-35 and we head north to Lancaster Ave. And uh, Lancaster Ave is like one of the shittiest parts of town. There's nothing but homeless shelters and attics. It looks like a poverty grenade went off and everybody threw themselves on it. <laughs> it's fucked. Yeah. And uh, pull up to the shelter, right? And it was fucking huge. I, I remember how big it was. And go in, get his key, and uh, we each have an armful of his shit. And we're in the elevator, and we take it to the top floor, and my dad was in the penthouse, and, <laughs> and we're like walking through, and there's all these like homeless guys walking out of the showers and towels and stuff, like they're all named the general, you know, they're fucking crazy looking. And we get to my dad's room, I say room, but it was really just four pieces of plywood that were about eight feet high, and just kind of like sectioned off in what more or less would be a warehouse space where he's in there and it's like a little bit it's like a third of the size of this stage he's like alright I'm gonna organize my shit you go downstairs and get some more of my stuff and I was like okay I love you and he was like just go get my stuff and <laughs> I go down to the car and I have like some old records of my dad's and uh, I get in the elevator and I'm by myself and 
I know y'all can't tell now, but when I was 15, I was fucking cute. Like rosy cheeks, a lot of curves. Like a young Christina Hendricks. And I... And I'm standing in there, you know, cute as can be, by myself. And the elevator door is closing, right? And like out of a movie, the most hairy knuckled hand I'd ever seen in my just <laughs> And in walked a man I can only describe as having one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. <laughs> just sweater of life is unraveling. This dude fucked. Just I don't like beaten, you know? And in a voice that made Johnny Cash sound like Vincent Price. <laughs> he just goes, you're kind of young to be moving in here on your own. <sighs> to which I replied, oh no, no, I have a home. <laughs> and look, I didn't mean it like that. I know, because when I saw his face, really hurt his feelings. It's like kicking something down a flight of stairs and there's more stairs than you thought. But I wasn't gonna like hug him or anything. And I'm like, all right, we'll see ya. You know, walk out with my Linda Ronstadt records and um, I get back to my dad's room and like I can hear him crying. And I say, I didn't want to embarrass him. So I said, Pop, here, I need you to help me with the door. I got too much stuff. And so, you know, his face is all puffy and shit, but I didn't, you know. And I kind of was thinking like, why would, he probably just didn't want to do that alone. It's a shitty thing to have to do. So like, I have some perspective on it now, but I didn't then. And um, eventually, my dad moved out of the shelter with two other guys. So imagine Animal House as a drama. <laughs> or the funniest episode of The Wire. And, <laughs> so the first, he's like, hey, I'm out of the shelter. Come over and see me. Uh, and I was like, all right. And I drive over, and I have my little brother with me. We're pretty close, so I'm kind of feeling protective or whatever. So I don't know these fucking guys. And I get over, and I knock on the door. And who do you think answered? Because it wasn't me, and it wasn't my dad. And there's only one other person in this story. <laughs> So this is not some dude I had crushed, but my new Uncle Tommy, who used to be a meth cook for the Hell's Angels. And the other guy, this is where it gets weird, <laughs> was, he was mentally unstable, and he had like a vocal impairment, like he could speak just about like this much, you could barely hear him. And everything he told us about himself hand to God 
was a character trait Steven Seagal held in one of his movies. Uh, so we would be over there, and he would just be like, you know, I used to be a Navy SEAL, but now I'm a cook. And you're like, my wife was killed by a crooked senator. And you're like, fuck. It's like me and Kurt Russell saved the president. He's a crazy person. And he kind of looked like him, and she was weird. Um, but my, uh, my dad had to move out because Tommy started cooking meth again in a three-bedroom apartment. Uh, these guys didn't own anything, and my father didn't have much, but he had more than them, so he was taking all the dishes and everything out of the living room, television, all this shit, and as we're... I guess the real tragedy of this story is that I'd had to help somebody move twice. I, um... <laughs> but we were moving all this shit out, and uh, Tommy, he stopped my dad as we're getting the last box of stuff or whatever, and Tommy just stops him. And this is, is actually the saddest thing I have ever heard. He just goes... Simon, could you leave me a spoon? <laughs> Fuck. Now, y'all may not have a lot, but you probably have a spoon. <laughs> <sighs> Fuck me up. But eventually, my dad, he got his shit together, got a job, and met a wonderful woman. She lived three blocks from my mom. Uh, so just, you know. What? And, uh, you know, things went pretty well for a while. Like, he, they were married. He had a house with her. They traveled. And then uh, about 12 years later, he had a, a stroke. And, uh, you know, how those go fuck you up pretty good and we had to put him on hospice so we couldn't he wasn't coming out of it but uh he that happened but not before him being so broke my father never met a dollar he couldn't spend uh they were so broke by the time my father died he had to sell their grave plots so he kind of ended up homeless anyways oh I lived it. And some of you were like, well, clearly you cremated him. Yeah, that's true. But some of you were like, well, your father was a great wanderer. Where could you have possibly spread those ashes? I'll tell you. We kept him. And then when my grandmother, my father's mother, when she passed away, we put his urn in her casket. So he kind of just moved back in with his mom. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I'm Shane Torres. I appreciate it.
This is Risk. This is Aaron Lee Tasjan behind me now. And we just heard from Shane Torres. You can find Shane on Twitter at, what is it? It's Syrup Mountain. <laughs> and, and you can find his website at shaneisacomedian.com. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, including that very famously uncomfortable scene from the 1967 classic, The Graduate. If you've never seen it, well, young Benjamin did, in fact, sleep with Mrs. Robinson. And that's why it's a shame they couldn't have gone to adamandeve.com back then. Because <laughs> right now you can go to adamandeve.com and get 50% off just about any item when you do. And you'll get a free... <laughs> you'll get a free sex swing. Can you imagine Dustin Hoffman and Ann Bancroft going at it on a sex swing? And they'd get free shipping. You just enter the code RISK at the checkout. That's the code R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. And you get 50% off just about any item. Listen, they have so much. They have really high-end sex toys. They have really affordable, but really high-quality stuff. They have great condoms and lube and stuff like that. Everything you could possibly imagine, it's there. And you'll get a free sex swing and free shipping on your entire order. That's the code RISK at adamandeve.com. Our final story comes to us from Graham Isidore, who is a storyteller based in Toronto. Graham does a lot of storytelling around there, and he is a contributing writer for The Hard Times. Here he is now. This is Graham Isidore with a story we call The Waiting. So I'm 21. It's a couple of minutes after midnight, a few days before Thanksgiving, and I'm sitting in a hospital room. I'm sitting beside my mom. Uh, mom's in a wheelchair after a nasty slip. As such, she's mostly reliant on others to perform most day-to-day -day tasks, you know, like uh, getting around, feeding herself, etc., etc. Mom finds the wheelchair, like, immeasurably frustrating. She's usually really put together in this sort of like Hillary Clinton pantsuit kind of way. Um, she works as a vice principal. And growing up, she had ruled our house with a benevolent dictatorship. She made like helpful comments about like, hey, maybe you should go to bed now. Or like, uh, hey, maybe think about like uh, emptying the dishwasher once in a while. And if we didn't follow these things, she'd like lay down the law with an authority that's usually reserved for predatory animals. So that's mom. Um, she's in control and she's really together. The hospital room that we're in is like impossibly white. Uh, it's clean to the point of sterility. There's this faint smell of like bleach and lemon. Um, 
The only thing separating us from the other units is this thin blue curtain. It looks like something out of like TV or the movies, and because of that, I keep on expecting there to be a beep, right? Like in these scenarios, there's the beep of a heart monitor, but today there's no beep. Instead, what we have is this like steady, rhythmic, mechanical breathing. It's a slow. It sounds like Darth Vader. It's a respirator. And the respirator, of course, is not for my mom. Um, the respirator is actually for my dad because he's in a coma, which is the reason we're in the hospital. So dad had taken our dog for a walk earlier that day. It's something that he did every day after dinner. But the difference was today, he didn't return. Uh, a stranger found him in the park by our house. He was lying face down and unresponsive. And our dog was running around him in circles, barking frantically. There's a lot about the hospital room that I find upsetting. Um, there's the fact that my dad's hands have swollen up to four times their normal size. And there's the fact that he has three different needles going into his arms and there's the cut on his cheek and there's like the bruise above his head. But it's actually the respirator that's the toughest part because there's a tube going into his mouth and it's breathing for dad because he can't breathe on his own. But the tube means that even if he were awake, he wouldn't be able to talk. And dad, he's a talker. Growing up, uh, my father had worked as a lawyer, but eventually he kind of like worked his way up the ranks and he became a prosecutor. And later still, he was appointed to the bench as a judge. So in his life, he makes like these big grandiose speeches, right? Like he lays down verdicts and he um, talks to the community at events and occasionally he'll even talk to the media. But dad, um, dad's love, like his passion is stand-up comedy, which is absurd, right? <laughs> Like, because you don't want your judge working on his type five for Letterman. <laughs> like, that's not something you want from a person in a type of authority. The second reason why it's absurd is because dad's not funny. <laughs> like, he's not funny. There's this joke that he used to tell. Um, I'm never going to forget it. He came up to me one day and he goes, hey, uh, Graham, <laughs> I got a new one for you. Want to hear it? I'm like, yeah, lay it on me. And he goes, okay. All right, this is my favorite new joke. Hey, what's the first thing you know? And I'm like, what, Pops? And he goes, first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And I'm like, okay. And then what? And he's like, no, that's the joke. First thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And I'm like, is this like an Andy Kaufman routine? Like, what are we, what are we, what's happening right now? What are you talking about? And dad goes, uh, he explains that it's a lyric from the theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies, which is a show that went off the air 18 years before I was born. So I'm like, Dad, I don't understand that reference. Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you're just a cynic. <laughs> which is true, actually, but like, you know, not for that reason. So that's Dad. Um, he's a joker. That was his favorite joke. And I was thinking about that joke. And I was thinking about um, like his sense of humor in the hospital room. And I wanted to bring it up to my mom, you know? Like I wanted to, to remind her of the joke. But mom, she's quiet. She's like so quiet. And she's got his wedding ring um, in her lap. 
and we had to take off the wedding ring because his hands, they swelled up too big. And we were told if we didn't do it now, we were never gonna be able to. And so she's got the wedding ring in the lap and she's got her hand on his swollen hand and she's crying, she's crying like these short controlled sobs. And she's going, oh dearie, oh dearie, oh dearie, over and over again. And then that fades out. And for a minute it's quiet. It's quiet except for When I got the call earlier that day, I was actually in an experimental puppet show. Uh, it was at the factory theater and it was about two marionettes in the prairie provinces working out their homosexuality. It was about as good as you would expect. Um, anyways, uh, I didn't check my phone during the play because like etiquette. Um, but when I get out of the uh, theater, I look at my phone and I have 16 missed calls. And there's 42 text messages. And I check my phone and uh, the details are hazy at that point, but it's clear that it's bad. It's bad and I need to get to the hospital in the place that I grew up as quickly as I can. So I, I, I hail a cab and I get to the Bay and Dundas bus terminal and I catch the last Greyhound out of the city and I'm just full with this like adrenaline. I have so much anxiety and, and there's all these different thoughts going on in my head and I just need to get there. I need to get there. I need to get there so quickly and there's all these things that I'm thinking and when I get to the hospital, there's nothing to do. There's nothing I can do. So I just sit and I wait with my mom. At about 4 a.m., uh, she works up the courage to put together a few short sentences. She doesn't talk to me, she talks to Dad. And um, she says that it's been days since she had a proper wash. She says she feels unclean, the cast, it makes showering difficult, bathing impossible. Uh, she looks at him and she holds his hands so tight and she goes, uh, I know it's stupid, but I wish I could be beautiful for you right now. I don't even have clean hair. It's like I'm not in the room, right? I think for a sec, I remember this story that she told me. Mom never had another boyfriend. Um, they met in college. And on one of their first dates, they're on the porch and they're doing that tenuous thing before like the first kiss, that like energetic moment when you're about to kiss someone for the first time and they're flirting and they're going back and forth. And at one point, mom goes, uh, hey, I bet you can't tell 101 jokes in a row. And dad's a joker. So he's like, yeah, I can. She's like, no. And he's like, yeah. And he just told jokes. <laughs> until she got tired. <laughs> and went inside. And they didn't kiss that night. Um, but 14 months later, they were married. Mom's never had another boyfriend. And, uh, fuck. Doctors didn't pull punches with me, right? When I got there, I know I'm losing my father tonight. Like, that's something that's happening. But mom, she's losing something else. Uh, she's losing a partner. A person she's been with longer than I've been alive. Her partner, which is different. So I pause for a sec, and it's clear to me what I need to do. And I go to mom and I go, you know, I can, I can wash it for you. And she's like, no, no, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, it's not a big deal. I, I'd really like to. 
And she says, it's not too much of an inconvenience. Nope. So I flagged down the night nurse um, because dad shouldn't be alone in this scenario. He can't hear anything, right? But like, he shouldn't be by himself anyways. And I get the night nurse to wait with my dad. And she explains that there should be a bathroom like two floors below. It's big enough for the wheelchair and it's got a sink. So I wheel mom away. And I go downstairs and I find the bathroom. And the bathroom is um, less than white. It's a little bit dirty. And I have to keep on adjusting to get the wheelchair right. I don't want to put too much pressure on like mom's neck. But eventually I get it right, and I turn on the tap, uh, first cold, then hot. And I get the temperature good, and then I dispense the pink soap into my hands. And it smells cheap, it's like red suckers. I start to lather my mom's hair. And in that moment, I know there's all these things I'm supposed to be thinking, right? Like, um, it's weird, you get to a point where you start taking care of your parents, like they once took care of you, and I'm supposed to think that I'm, I'm way too young for this to be happening, and they're way too young for this to be happening, and I'm supposed to think all of these different things, but um, in that moment, all I can think is that washing a woman's hair is really different than washing my own hair. <laughs> it requires more soap than I ever use. I have to run my fingers through carefully to break up tangles and knots, so. We wash, we rinse, we repeat, we do this a couple times, and I turn mom around, and I dry her hair with brown, coarse paper towel that I took from the machine, and she looks at herself, and she smiles for the first time since I got to the hospital, and she says, there, so much better. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. And I say, yeah, no problem. And then we go back to dad's room and she takes his hand and we wait. Because at that point, waiting was all there was left to do. Broken hearts and broken bones Spent that summer all alone 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Parlor Tricks behind me now. And we just heard from Graham Isidore. You can find him on Twitter at PressGang. That's P-R-E-S-G-A-N-G. Now I want to let you know where Risk is appearing next on July 26th. That is this coming Wednesday. We are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We're at the Bell House on July 26th. On August 11th, we're back in Toronto. (laughs) Right back where you heard that recording of that story just now. At the Great Hall in Toronto on August 11th. On August 19th, we are back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And then on September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah at the Urban Lounge. The theme is unexpected. We're still taking pictures for that one. On November 3rd, we're in Baltimore at the Creative Alliance. The theme is Obsession. Still taking pictures for that. November 9th, back in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. The theme is Revealing. Still taking pictures for that. November 10th, Madison, Wisconsin at the High Noon Saloon. The theme that night is huge. November 11th, we're in Detroit, Michigan at the Magic Bag. The theme that night is Surprise. December 2nd, we're in Phoenix at the Valley Bar. The theme is jaw-dropping. And I think that covers it. We're taking pitches for all of those shows. And you know what else we're taking pitches for? Anything, anytime. You can always reach out to us if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a video that explains how to pitch us there. You can also go to SoundCloud. Go to SoundCloud, look up Risk Show, and there's an audio file there called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. It's a 48-minute lecture I give on tips for how to tell a risk-worthy story. If you've got a funny story, a scary story, you, you can find themes that might get your brain going if you go to the submissions page. We list a lot of the upcoming themes. You know the kinds of stories we run on the show. It's all over the map, just as long as it's brutally honest and revealing and just filled with real life happening. So pitch us at risk-show.com submissions. And if you want to learn even more about storytelling, if you want to really dig in and learn from me personally over Skype or from our video courses or one-on-one training or our in-person training or our corporate workshops, go to thestorystudio.org. We have taught corporate workshops at some of the biggest places, Google, Pfizer, Citibank, USA Today, Merck, Ernst & Young, and many, many, many more. So look us up at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Hello, kids. This is Ralph. <clears throat> oh, no, that is not what I meant to say. No, 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 no.